I'm Jessica Nam here at Arab Talk in San Francisco on KPOO.com, and I'm one of your co-hosts today. This is uh, Jamal Dajani, and this is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco. Uh, we are going live right here in San Francisco, and to thousands of people who are going to be watching us uh, just uh, on Facebook, Facebook and, Live, and and also, uh, you know, we're streaming uh, online on KPOO.com. Also now, we are going to be on SoundCloud starting this week, so people can listen to the show, listen yeah. to the show anywhere in the world. Well, I think that's, a, that's, you know, we've been getting a lot of requests for people to get our shows. Some people can't listen to it live. So this is an opportunity for, in both audio and video to be able to listen uh, to the shows and, you know, to send comments because, you know, we always welcome listener comments after uh, our shows. We've got a lot to talk about today, though, Jamal. That's right. And we have a lot, a lot. Every single day we can talk about the new subject, you know, every single day, and then we'll come back to it uh, like for now. Right. As you know, President Trump just ditched the whole one person agreement. One person <laughs> can undermine the health of this planet. One that's, person. That's right. It's unbelievable. But uh, more importantly is that uh, just, uh, you just came back. And you came back from the Middle East. You were in Qatar and other neighboring countries. Yeah, actually, I was in Qatar and in Saudi Arabia doing uh, doing some business. And I happened to be there at exactly the same time that the the Trump royal family and the Trump entourage were there. And I think it's important to put it in that context of the Trump royal family because one of the things that was amazing with with all of the people that I spoke with because I spoke spoke with uh, people from Saudi Arabia, I spoke with people from the UAE, I spoke with uh, individuals from uh, United Arab Emirates, from Abu Dhabi, from Dubai, and I have to tell you, Jamal, I was truly shocked. Well, here is the question, and this is the title of our show. Yeah? Do oil sheiks love Trump? Well, here here's the thing that is so intriguing so interesting and at the same time so disturbing. I would have to say almost universally, especially when speaking with people who are connected to the royal families in Saudi Arabia, UAE, and, and, and Qatar, that almost universally people had warm, affectionate, and very positive feelings about Donald Trump. And hearing them say that, I I had to do a double take on occasions because I had to like shake myself as if I was asleep. I couldn't believe that people were saying this given the context of how many how xenophobic and hateful Donald Trump's comments had been. In fact, I was speaking with people where uh from countries where Donald Trump wanted to ban them from coming into the United States. So uh, I'm trying to put this together and I think I have some sort of ideas, but in fact, Jamal, you're right. Oil sheikhs love Donald Trump, and they love Donald Trump for multiple reasons. Uh, I will have to say that one of the most disturbing things I saw was Donald Trump dancing with a sword, doing the sword dance, was 
was traumatic for me, and I, I, I may, in fact, never be able to get over that image of seeing Donald Trump dancing with uh, the royal family, the Saudi royal family. So in terms of breaking it down, there's one real big reason why they love uh, Donald Trump. Number one, he's not Barack Obama. There, there truly is uh, a lot of enmity and negative feeling about Barack Obama, especially his policy of doing the nuclear deal with Iran. Uh, people in the Gulf area really felt like, on balance, Barack Obama had tilted his foreign policy toward favoring and empowering Iran. And one one way of kind of generally understanding the region is that there is a strategic um, battle going on between Iran and Saudi Arabia. I mean, and, and that's that's pretty clear. Iran and all of its surrogates, and then Saudi Arabia and all of its surrogates. And Israel doesn't fit in this equation? Actually, it does, and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. So the, the, Gulf, the Gulf sheikhs and the Gulf nations saw Barack Obama as favoring Iran. They saw that the deal with Iran in terms of the nuclear deal to, you know, um, basically release the sanctions, giving Iran uh, financial you know, support again and, and being able to, you know, basically empower Iran and its surrogates as really damaging to the strategic interests of the Gulf countries. So the fact that uh, Donald Trump comes along and says Iran is the enemy, Iran is our is the number one enemy of the United States in terms of this part of the world, and we, we're not going to do business with them. In fact, I may cancel the, the nuclear deal, was welcome music to the oil sheikhs and to the royal families of the Gulf. Second, and specifically with Saudi Arabia, you have to realize that they were cutting deals of upwards of $500 billion with Saudi Arabia. I mean, they're, they're basically talking about um, arms deals, air, uh, airline deals, uh, strategic deals, investment deals that over the next 10 years or so are going to be about $500 billion of uh, commerce between the United States and Saudi Arabia and maybe some of the other Gulf countries. This is a huge, huge windfall for, for the Saudis as well as for Donald Trump. Well, I mean, in fact, uh, just to let you know, this week, uh, you know, uh, Saudi Arabia has hired three U.S. lobbying firms right. to do its bidding in Washington, uh, you know, including an obscure group made up of former Trump advisors that will receive $5.4 million Absolutely. for one year's work. This is, this is uh, public. All that you have to do is look at uh, federal records. Yeah, and I think that's part of it, is that the Saudis... The Saudis and the Gulf countries never believed that they could truly do a deal with uh, Barack Obama. They felt that his alliance and his allegiances were 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 kind of complex, too complicated, and um, they they didn't feel like he was in the corner of the Gulf countries. Donald Trump, on the other hand, is ready to do a deal. He did deals. He's bringing five hundred billion dollars to the table, and who knows what else. And then the third thing, which is really interesting. They perceive Donald Trump as royalty, not as the president of the United States. His trusted advisors are his family members, and that's how the royal family works, I mean, and they like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, you can appoint your 
son son-in-law. as uh, well in his case a son-in-law but in Saudi Arabia the minister of, of defense is a, a prince and the, right. the minister of interior is another member of the house of Saud the minister and they of, like that they love it they it's like all, that it's all in the family that's the way they see it and so when the when the Trump entourage got off the plane and into the Saudi you know limousines you know what you saw was Donald Trump Ivan you know, Melania, Ivanka, Jared, you saw the Trump royal family, and the Saudis really, really, really like that. They like the fact that they can call up Jared Kushner and get a direct contact with the President of the United States. In fact, as was reported in the Saudi and the Gulf uh, media, Jamal, the person that was at the center of negotiating the, the basically $500 billion deal between the United States and the Saudis, and this is your money and my money and U.S. taxpayer money, the person who negotiated that is Jared Kushner. So you have a non-elected, non-appointed family member, essentially, negotiating on behalf of the United States who is has a familial relationship with the President of the United States and is negotiating $500 billion worth of contracts. Just reminding our listeners, you're listening to the voice of uh, our co-host right here, <laughs> Dr. Jess Ghanem, who just returned from Qatar and Saudi Arabia, and you witnessed it all. I, I saw the whole thing, you saw You saw the whole thing. You spoke to the public. You spoke to some colleagues, right, yeah. some intelligentsia. What's the difference, actually, you know, we shouldn't, maybe it's a little bit uh, confusing when, you know, we monitor the news from there and we, we see all the, jo the jokes and, 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 and the coverage of, of that visit. There is a difference between the man on the street and when we talk about, you know, the higher echelons there, right? right? Yeah, and, and, and generally speaking, you know, there are these class differences, you know, obviously all over the world. And w when you're talking about people in the Gulf area where I was, and you talk about people in the royal family or have access to large resources, it's, it's unequivocal. They like Donald Trump, despite what Donald Trump said about Muslim, uh, about Muslims, about Islam, all the horrible things he has said. All forgiven. Completely forgiven. Now, uh, w having said that, though, when you when I did speak with the intelligentsia, however, there was a little bit of uh, concern about that because they were actually saying that in the long term, given the problems that Donald Trump has, you know, on the on the domestic front, which we'll get into a little bit later, hitching their wagon to Donald Trump may not be in the long-term strategic interests of the Gulf region. It's unclear whether or not he'll serve out his term. It's unclear whether or not he can really deliver on these deals. And it's unclear whether or not Donald Trump can truly be t uh, trusted. So this is coming from the intelligentsia, coming from some of the people on the streets who are a little bit skeptical about the love affair that the sheikhs and the royal family had with Donald Trump. Uh, the other thing that got reported widely, Jamal, and I know it didn't get reported widely here, is that the, that the relationship between the Saudis and Israel and the Gulf countries and Israel, especially the UAE, I, I, I came to the conclusion is much 
much more intense and much more and much deeper and much more um, involved than I had ever suspected. I mean, there's trade, you know, under the table. There's ongoing discussions. It looks like, and I can't confirm this independently, but that Jared Kushner is really doing the the bidding on facilitating a lot of these increased communications and and potential future arrangements between the Israeli government and the Gulf countries. So it was truly a remarkable eye-opening trip in terms of seeing how one person could could geopolitically change the whole dynamic of a region in such a short period of time. Well, the Saudis must be also aesthetic uh, to update our listeners. Uh, Also today, uh, President Donald Trump announced his decision to withdraw the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. Unbelievable. And the Saudis are happy about that. They're very happy about that. That's right. Anyone who is in the oil industry and that obsolete uh, coal uh, mining industry are very happy uh, about this. Well, I think the Saudis uh, had a problem with Barack Obama, as I said, for multiple reasons. They didn't feel like they had Barack Obama's ear. Now they feel like w- one phone call they can get to Donald Trump. Now the other thing that was interesting, and this was reported, again, not independently confirmed, the amount of gifts that Donald Trump received from the Saudi royal family was sickening, to say the least. He the, he got a sword, you know, the sword that he was dancing with. They gave him a commemorative sword made out of 24-karat gold. Wow. They gave him 45 watches, all platinum, solid gold, diamond-encrusted. They gave him access to a yacht, and there was rumors that uh, that he was gifted a yacht after he gets out of the White House. So the amount of gifts that were given to Donald Trump by the by uh, the king and the royal family in Saudi Arabia was at a level that is just uh, you know sickening. We're talking about gifts equal you know equal to millions and millions and millions of dollars. So Donald Trump loved it. You could see it. He he was loving this, and he loves you know. I mean, you know, if you visited one of his uh, buildings, the Trump Tower or the casinos in uh, uh, what used to be in uh, his casinos in in Atlantic City, he loves that gold and he glitter and uh, the big chairs, big chairs, everything, gardeners, garden, you know, that's that's it, that's just so befitting. Now the other thing though that I thought was a little disturbing is that you know the. Uh, Melania and Ivanka did not cover themselves, you know, did not wear any kind of hijab or hijab light. Um, and they did so uh, meeting the Pope. And they did the same thing with the Pope. I would, No, 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 they covered. Oh, they covered with yeah, the Pope. Yeah, they, they so wore they, appropriate attire. Right. But the argument, uh, I, I've heard this argument, uh, that was made, well, you know, the Saudis do not uh, represent, the, you know, the king is not, uh, you know, in charge of religion. Or yes, he is, though, but he's in charge of the holiest sites. He's in charge of Mecca. He's in charge of the Haram there. He's in charge of the 
uh, of the holy sites in Medina. So he he actually is in charge of the holy sites. So I mean, and and women are not allowed to drive in Saudi Arabia, exactly. and they're not even allowed an audience with the king. And and there were no the, women. The majlis, you know, no. when they meet, but they were given. A special pass. They were given a special pass. So the whole thing, the, things are changing so fast in, in the Middle East right now, Jamal. Um, so you had that. But then Donald Trump assembled with the help of the king of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think it was some 85 to 93 countries, uh, leaders from 93 countries of either Arab or Muslim majority countries who came and they all did the kumbaya moment that they're going to fight terrorism. It, it with uh, Sisi was there, uh, King Abdullah was there, Abu Mazen was there, Every everybody except Bashar al-Assad, obviously. Everybody else was there. It was truly a, a remarkable meeting of people and world leaders from, you know, the Middle East, North African, and Muslim-majority countries that we haven't seen, I don't think, in recent memory. And the king of Saudi Arabia was able to bring them all. They were able to universally condemn, you know, terrorism and Islam, and, and people were just lapping it up. I, I, was, I was truly, truly shocked and then to see what he did in europe as a counterpoint to that which you know we'll get into in a minute but the fact that he could do that in saudi arabia with uh, you know collection of uh, you know middle east arab and uh, muslim leaders who he has expressed the most extreme vitriol for and then go to Europe and basically lecture the Europeans. He said to the king, he said to all the leaders, I'm not going to tell you how to live your life. He, basically, he gave, he gave the king of Saudi Arabia and all these regimes carte blanche to, to do whatever they want to do, whether it's uh, against their political adversaries, whether it's against you know, civil, you know, human rights, whatever. He said, I don't care. I'm not going to come and lecture you. They love that because Barack Obama came and lectured them on human rights. Well, uh, and, and this brings me back again to remind our listeners that the Saudis have now added six U.S. lobbying firms since Trump's election. Unbelievable. I mean, they have six, the largest of which is um, uh, Sonoran Policy Group of Arizona. And oh. they have offices in Washington, D.C. See, the Saudi Interior Ministry hired the Sonoran Policy Group after Trump announced he would visit Saudi Arabia. And uh, they received $5.4 million to represent the government of Saudi Arabia in, in D.C. Now, what, what Trump didn't say to, to the Saudi leaders, he didn't say anything about Yemen. He didn't say anything about human rights. He didn't say anything about what Saudi Arabia is doing in Syria. He didn't, he didn't as I said, basically uh, did a 180 from Barack Obama. He gave the Saudis and the, the entire royalty of the region in the Gulf and, and dictators throughout the region, gave them carte blanche to keep doing everything that they're doing. So... Uh, goes to Europe then and starts lecturing the Europeans. Well, before before yeah. Europe, let's talk about uh, his trip to 
Palestine. Well, that was, I think that was really a kind of interesting, interesting trip for, for lots of reasons, Ramon. We have to put that in the context of Trump announcing today that he signed an executive order basically waiving uh, his right to move the U.S. embassy from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. That's a complicated way of saying, as of now, Donald Trump is not moving the U.S. embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And I think that's basically pressure from, you know, the Gulf and Sisi and King Abdullah. I think, you know, there's big pressure. That's not to say that he may not do it in the future. But he said, it, it, I think I read it is a temporary waiver. Temporary waiver, but uh, this is kind of interesting because it does it did worry the Israelis a little bit. I mean, the, basically, the negotiation with the Israelis, Jamal, is basically this: I can we can open up markets to the Israelis to the Gulf if we can cut a deal with the Palestinians. It's all based on economics. It's a that, small it's a small compromise. I mean, right? That's what it is. Right. But uh, what? What what Trump didn't stop, I mean, not stopping the, you know, stopping the embassy from moving to Jerusalem is a small thing because it's temporary. The bigger news is that, you know, he told Bibi Netanyahu to kind of slow down on the settlements. Well, I have news for, for our listeners. The settlements are not slowing down. Beit El, uh, all of these illegal settler colonial outposts that are illegal dotting the beautiful hillsides of historic Palestine and the West Bank are are growing at astronomical levels, and the Trump administration is not doing anything to stop it. So the visit to to Palestine was um, what was just extremely positive for Bibi Netanyahu. Now the Israeli press, though, just to put a little spin on this, and you you know this, but there are there were reports and op eds that you know. You know the 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 kind of more and and we put this in quotes obviously more progressive forces among Israeli government. There's no such thing as truly progressive, but in comparison to the right wing extremism of Bibi Netanyahu, who are skeptical of Donald Trump. A lot of Israelis don't trust Donald Trump. They think that he's mercurial, that he his mood can change, that he might give away too much to the Palestinians. So. That you know, there isn't universal love for for Donald Trump among the Israeli elite. Yeah, but there was a, a love fest between him and Netanyahu. For sure. And and of course he managed to spend a whole total of forty five minutes going to Bethlehem. Uh, we, we were surprised uh, he, that he spent forty five yeah, minutes that, there. That that was like forty five minutes, and it was reported. And now I think. Even the Palestinian Authority is not de denying this, but Trump was yelling at Mahmoud Abbas. Yes. He was yelling at him and uh, accusing him. He, he was saying uh, things, and I'm paraphrasing, you have lied to me, uh, you know, and he, he, was, he was talking about incitement at, uh, against Israel. Yeah, I mean, that's the bogus. I mean, he's being fed talking points by the Israelis, obviously. So. And here, here is the, actually the quote. Yeah. And he said, you tricked me in D.C. You talked there about your commitment to peace, but the Israelis showed me your involvement in incitement. Well, of course, that's what the Israelis always do. I mean, net, net, Jamal, if we really look at what's going to be happening, is that uh, the structure of the deal, 
If you look at the way the Obama administration was structuring the deal, they were trying to structure a solution to the Palestinian question based on somewhat principles of international law, some principles of United Nations resolution, some sense of, you know, you know, international law. The Trump approach has nothing to do with international law. It has nothing to do with international United Nations resolutions. It has all to do with opening up markets to the Israelis to do deals within the Arab world and the Middle East. And the quid pro quo is really going to be about money and about projects and about, you know, being able to do these deals. It, and, and Palestinians and people in the region need to understand that, that they are going to be sold down the river, that the possibility of a just solution in Palestine is even further away now than it, than it has ever been. I mean, uh, the lack of leadership among Palestinians, what's happening with Donald Trump, his willingness to cut all these deals, the, 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 the Gulf countries want to do deals. They, they want to expand their markets. The Israelis want to expand their markets. And that's the way the solution, you know, in quotes, to the question of Palestine is being structured. In fact, I would say, Jamal, the Palestinians are out of the equation. They are. They've been thrown under the bus. Absolutely. Palestinians are thrown under the bus. Abu Mazen, Mahmoud Abbas, is no longer part of the equation. He got completely, I, I'll say this, I, I think he got castrated on this trip. He got undercut in terms of any authority whatsoever. Uh, nothing good came out of it for Palestinians on the Donald Trump trip. There, there's no question about it. I mean, how much leverage does Mahmoud Abbas have over his you know, the direction of uh, what's happening we in, have, in Palestine. We, I'll give you the answer in Arabic, zift, which, which means zero. In fact, I would say less than zero. I mean, the Palestine, at least under Barack Obama, even though I have so many criticisms, there was the appearance of negotiating between two parties. Now what's on the table is trying to figure out a way how to solve the question of Palestine by giving the Israelis everything and appeasing the, the royal families in the Gulf. Palestinians are not in the equation anymore, Jamal. Well, I mean, this is not uh, surprising. I mean, we've been seeing the situation there deteriorating by the minute. By the minute, actually. And, and uh, I mean, this is basically the best scenario for... Israel for for Bibi Netanyahu. Absolutely. I mean, he, when he talks about um, Donald Trump, their best buddies, their besties. They are besties from from before, not not from but now. I, but I will say though, there is a strain of analysis that says because Donald Trump is having all these domestic problems, it's unclear. And again, this is coming from the academics and the political analysts, both in the Gulf and you know, among the Israelis, it, the question is, is hitching your wagon to Donald Trump really wise at this time? So there is, you know, there is some disagreement among the elite, the political elite, and some of the more progressive forces, whether or not it's good to hitch your wagon to Donald Trump. Now, Republicans here in the United States are, are questioning that, too. I mean, they're throwing out the word impeachment, they're throwing out words like obstruction of justice. They're, you know, Trump's legislative agenda, Jamal, as we know, is dead. I mean, there's basically less than seven weeks. 
before the summer recess, whether or not health care, tax reform, infrastructure, the three big projects or programs that Donald Trump wanted to, like, put on his legislative agenda, there's just no way that's going to happen. So, you know, what I say to uh, Bibi Netanyahu, I'd say, be careful, you know, who you hit your way. You know, you... You, you kind of put all your eggs in that basket. It's unclear whether or not anything will be delivered in the long run, given the domestic problems that Donald Trump is facing right now. Now, you were uh, in both uh, Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia. Right. And uh, this is actually, I'm sure you've witnessed the friction to say the least, that's ongoing between now Qatar and, and Saudi Arabia. Oh, there's big friction right now. And, uh, and uh, you know, the accusations flying back and forth. What did you think about this? Well, in fact, while I was there, Jamal, the uh, emir of uh, Qatar withdrew the ambassadors from Saudi Arabia, uh, Bahrain, and the other Gulf uh, Emirate uh, states. And it really has to do with uh, Donald Trump vilifying uh, Hamas and Hamas leadership in, in, in Gaza and basically putting Hamas on the terrorism list despite the fact, and we haven't even reported on this yet, maybe you did while I was away, that Hamas has actually even toned down its rhetoric even further in relation to its willingness to negotiate a peace settlement with the Israelis before it was never on the table now it's on they've been they've been politically trying to be more accommodating and yet when Donald Trump went to the region and he had this sit down with the other countries and and, and the royal family there was this insistence on you know, basically pairing Hamas with Hezbollah, with Iran, and kind of vilifying it. And the reason, the reason the Qataris were so upset with this is because just last year, Barack Obama and some of the other uh, U.S. officials were saying, we want you to open channels with Hamas. We think, you know, we can negotiate and talk and maybe figure out something. So the Qataris are saying, well, which direction are we going? On the one hand, you, you've asked me to do these things, and on the other hand, now you're coming and you're changing your tune, so on and so forth. So there's a lot of friction now between and, the And then, of course, there was this uh, crazy news story where, uh, you know, the emir of Qatar, emir Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad al-Thani, uh, was saying uh, something that their website was hacked. Right. A statement that came, you know, in in, in his name. Then the website of Al Jazeera. Right. Was not uh, could not be accessed either in in Qatar or even in, right. in Saudi Arabia. Right. Right. I mean, they didn't want any negative coverage in Saudi Arabia or the Gulf coming from Al Jazeera about Donald Trump's visit, basically, and. Um, you know, Qatar, uh, you know this, is this very small peninsula. It's this little little bit of a thumb that sticks out from Saudi Arabia. It's considered, I mean, you know, traditionally the Qataris have been treated with a lot of disrespect, you know, by the Saudis. The Saudis are the big, the big kid on the block. It's, you know, it's huge, the oil resources. And the Qataris politically tend to be, you know, they tend to be more open politically to, you know, 
you know, engaging with people and communities and countries from all over the world. You're listening to the voice of uh, Jess Ghanem, who just recently returned from Qatar and Saudi Arabia. We're going to take a short musical break. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco, 89.5 FM. Stay tuned. This is Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco, and Dr. Jess Ghanem is back in the house after two weeks. Two weeks in the Gulf. Two weeks in the Gulf. In the Gulf. Yeah, it was really... The the question of the day, do all cheeks heart Donald Trump? Definitely. Here's what I would say was the meme throughout uh, the Gulf country was when Donald Trump was visiting, everybody was giving the you know, the heart signal. There was a kind of affection. The heart or the dollar sign? I don't know which one. <laughs> Probably both. The, the level of affection that Donald Trump felt from the, the royalty of the Gulf, and this is why his energy was up, because, you know, when he comes to the United States, when he's back here domestically, Jamal, he's getting hammered from all sides. He's getting hammered from Democrats, hammered from certain Republicans, hammered from the judicial branch, hammered from the legislative branch, hammered by Democrats. I mean, he's getting slammed. But in Saudi Arabia, he was loved. He's a king. He was a king. He was treated like royalty. Barack Obama was never treated like that. Any other president that went, even George Bush, the Bush family, which is an oil family that had a lot of kinship, obviously, with the Saudis and the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, was never feted like this. Donald Trump got a boost of energy uh, because he was so loved. I don't think Donald Trump really understood what love was about when he, until he experienced Arab love, Jamal. <laughs> well, uh, I wouldn't call it. I call it uh, the Gulf she- love. Gulf love. <laughs> because that's not how everyone feels uh, about him. Certainly not. Uh, he's not loved in Palestine. 
he's not loved in Jordan even you know but the king has a very strong even relationship though, well with him. i mean well jordan has a strong relationship with the united states no matter who is in the white house but uh, certainly uh, not uh, in, in in the middle east uh, i want to switch uh, gears here a little bit because i'm sure you've been uh, monitoring uh, you know, I mean, and we've talked about this uh, several times, uh, this whole wave of Islamophobia, and it is also related to the election of Donald Trump uh, since he, he took office. Right. And there has been a, a spike in, in attacks uh, on Muslims uh, all over the country. And, and mosques. And mosques. But uh, most recently, there was the murder of two men who tried to protect a pair of young women from a hateful tirade aboard a max train, uh, you know, f in, in Portland. In Portland, right. And uh, one of them uh, is a 27-year-old uh, immigrant from Ethiopia, a graduate student uh, who was returning home. Uh, um, and then the other one uh, who uh, still has not been, she, she has not uh, identified herself uh, publicly yet. No, but we know that you know, there were two African-American women and, the other, and one was wearing a hijab. And the other one is uh, was wearing a hijab. And, and uh, three people actually came to their aid. Two were killed. Two were killed. Brutally yeah, slashed their no, throats. Their throats were slashed. Their throats were slashed. The three of them, actually, their throats were one survived. One luckily survived. survived. I mean, what do you think about this? Well, I I actually have a lot to say about that, and uh, I've been following the story very carefully. I think Jamal, it's a microcosm for so much about what's happening in in this country: the good, the bad, and the ugly. The ugly is that, as we've been saying quite a bit on our shows, is that because of the election of Donald Trump and his hateful rhetoric toward people of color, toward Muslims, towards people from the Middle East, Arabs, Muslims, anybody, he has given the green light of hate and the green light to verbally and physically assault people that are perceived to be from the Arab world or perceived to be Muslim. He has given the green light. And what that has done is open up the floodgates of people who have uh, these hateful feelings and hateful ideas and hateful intentions. And it's created, Jamal, I think, a, a, a kind of a wave of people just being able to not only say racist and xenophobic things, but now act them out. So, and I think it's a mistake because what some people are saying, Jamal, is, oh, the guy was mentally ill. This is not about mental illness. This is about a hate How come every time uh, a white supremacist commits a heinous crime, it's always about mental this illness? This is not about mental illness. This is about a white supremacist who was well known to the Portland Police Department, who was known and notorious for making hateful, racist, xenophobic comments. In fact, he said to these two women, go back to your own country, get out of here. I mean, you know, basically using the... You know, we can't use this language on air, but using extremely violent derogatory comments. So 
What is remarkable is that we still have people in this country, Jamal. We have to say, you know, our our condolences to the family members of the two two men who were killed, and our our condolences and and heartfelt feelings to the families of the deceased. Because you have these two men, one of whom is a Republican, another one, you know, went to the most progressive school, you know, in the United States, Reed College. The other guy was, you know, was a was in the military, fought in the Gulf Wars, and these these two individuals gave their lives in an attempt to save the lives of these two African-American women who were being assaulted by this white supremacist. So you have the good, the bad, and the ugly all in this microcosm in Portland, which is a reflection of really what's happening in this country right now. You know, moths are being targeted. They're being firebombed. Uh, women are being attacked because they're wearing hijab. The, the hateful rhetoric that the alt-right and the white supremacy groups are, are spewing and, and spewing on Facebook, for that matter, and all these other sites is unbelievable. And Donald Trump was forced three days after the incident, Jamal, to, we, and we put this in quotes, condemn what happened in Portland. Which, by the way, he condemned it on Twitter, but not on his personal account, on he the won't. president, on Portus, the president of the no. United States account, which I know probably is managed by someone right. else, but it's not his personal account, the one he wakes up in the middle of the night and says what's on his mind, that actually we have not heard so an why, official. So why isn't that being condemned more forcefully? Or, or for something like this, even he needs to travel and go to Portland and offer condolences Absolutely. to the families of the victims Absolutely. and meet with the the young brave man in 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 the hospital and meet with the the young uh, ladies who were accosted on on the train none Absolutely. of that none of that happened no and then when you don't get a full-throated condemnation of these racist xenophobic attacks on you know, the, they were women, they were African-American, and one of whom was Muslim. And, you know, look at that trifecta of, of targets that the President of the United States, using his bully pu pulpit, is unable to condemn in a full-throated way. What, it, what the message it sends, Jamal, I think, is, well, it, I, you know, what's the big deal, basically? Minimizing it and not really standing up and condemning it in this strong way saying that these things are unacceptable, it leaves room open for all of the, you know, hateful, xenophobic, racist individuals that are coming to the fore. I mean, I think we should talk about what happened to LeBron James also. Mm -hmm. So LeBron James has this home in Los Angeles that someone spray paints the N-word on, on, uh, on his house. So even arguably one of the greatest athletes even though you know i'm i'm kind of i'm not feeling him right now because he's we have a love we have a love hate relationship right. uh, with lebron i mean but, but arguably, i love his uh, that he's a great basketball player but hey he, just not for the next 2 weeks no i don't want him to beat my team right the but, golden state warriors yeah but arguably you know he's one of the greatest athletes he of is, all time he is he is and not only that not is not only is he a great athlete he has amassed his own uh, fortune based on his business acumen. He is an extremely wealthy, articulate, you know, powerful person. And he, as LeBron James, 
gets subjected to these racist, hateful comments. He's not even immune. What is that saying about the? And society? he helps a lot of people, by the way. Um, you know, he has uh, he, he has donated a lot of money. Of course, I mean to, he's to, a humanitarian to, and all of this stuff. And even LeBron James is not immune to this. And I think that that's the culture that that the Trump administration has created for all the racist, xenophobic, white supremacists now that it's okay to go to, you know, uh, uh, a black man's house and spray paint the N-word and, and, and be able to do that in Los Angeles. So I, I think this is really a horrific time that we're living in right now because of, you know, these two events. And I think Le LeBron James' comments, by the way, were brilliant. I mean, he basically called it out. Well, this is what he said. He said... Hate is alive every single day, and no matter how much money you have, no matter how famous you are, no matter how many people admire you, you know being black in America is tough. Full stop, man. Full and, stop. And so the question is, I mean, those racists, Islamophobes, uh, anti-Semites, we go down the line, they were not born yesterday. No. It's always been here, right? It's always been here. It's always been here. But there is a difference. But it's been checked in the past. They weren't given the opportunity. I mean, people either consciously or unconsciously or subconsciously will look to Donald Trump and they look to our leader and take cues from the leader about what's permissible and what's not permissible. And if you have the leader of the, and I hate to say this, free world, I mean, I'm saying, you know, I'm saying that with the, with all the caveats that it should have, who, who basically promotes and foments this kind of, you know, atmosphere, it's, it opens up the floodgates, Jamal. So that's so what people should do. I mean, now, I mean, there is hate targeting African Americans for <laughs> 600 years 600 years but who's counting and all, uh, all all the different minorities and every single minority or ethnic group went through it in the United States today it seems to be Arabs and and, and Muslims in in this country uh, you know Japanese Americans were interned that's right uh, during World War two people are talking about interning Muslims and that's right. And uh, today, you know, today after, they're talking today. about it. So what people do uh, need, need to do? I mean, when you have young woman uh, facing someone armed with a knife, I mean, in a sad way, they were lucky they because were lucky. because these these uh, men intervened. But should and this is a legitimate question. I mean, the the alt right they talk about their Second Amendment. Should Muslims you know, I'm I'm arm themselves in this country to protect to you know should they should they exercise their Second Amendment? I I'm not right. I'm not going to go in that direction. But what I will say is that I think law enforcement, and I think the Justice Department, you know, who's headed by Jeff Sessions. Oh my God, you know who, you know, I mean that that speaks for itself. But our Justice Department, our law enforcement personnel have to step up. 
And, you know, they have to take xenophobic, racist crimes against our community and against all communities because it's, it's not just the Arab and Muslim community. It's the Latino community. It's the South Asian community. It's the African-American community. It's all communities of color that are being targeted right now. And the, and the Justice Department and law enforcement have to step up to protect our communities, Jamal, because otherwise it's... It's going to I'm worried that it's going to get worse, frankly. So the call is not to take the law in your own hands. No. I mean, but to rely on the FBI, rely on uh, law enforcement, or is it to rely on each other, really, you know, uh, to have coalitions, build yeah. coalitions building, between, and building coalitions. between the different communities of color? Right. Now, we're lucky here in San Francisco, we do have we have built those coalitions over the years. So we have really great coalitions here and pretty decent relations with, with you know, law enforcement here. I mean, it's, it, there's a long way to go, obviously. Yeah, but, but you know, with, uh, San Francisco is an island. It is you know, different. It's, it's a totally that's, different. That's and, what I was going to say. Living somewhere in the, in the Midwest Absolutely. or in the South. Absolutely. So I'm really calling on the good will of everyday Americans, Jamal, because the fact that these two gentlemen, these two heroes, they were really heroes, got up on their own, decided that we're not going to let this racist, xenophobic person do something. Unfortunately, they paid the greatest price. They died. But I think, generally speaking, most Americans are on the same page with these these heroic individuals and we as a as a larger community in this country and in this society we have to stand together against these racist xenophobic uh, trends and people came together in portland in support of the victims and in fact i think the uh, Muslim Americans uh, have raised more than two hundred thousand dollars. No, it's like three hundred thousand. Now three hundred thousand. Yeah, yeah, it's an incredible amount to, of money to help the families. I mean, it it's it will never, uh, you know, compensate no, anyone for the for that. the lives of uh, your loved ones. But it just shows the uh, the sentiment behind right. it and the appreciation. But I want to say something about the media, Jamal. This guy is arraigned in court that uh, killed these heroes. The media is there broadcasting it live, and he's spewing out more hateful rhetoric. Yeah, he considers himself a patriot. And they air it. Yeah. And, and that just is, like, unbelievable to me that they would... They would give this guy a platform to articulate and speak his hateful, hateful speech in that way and then disseminate it throughout, you know, the social media. So, you know, uh, yeah, there's free speech. In fact, this guy is claiming uh, there's no more free speech because I'm arrested. If if I could just say whatever I wanted to say and do whatever I wanted to do, I wouldn't be arrested. I mean, really crazy thinking that is operating in these extremist groups right now, Jamal. That's right. There is also a major difference between free speech and hate speech. And That's this right. guy has been going uh, from rally to the other, uh, performing the Nazi salute. And uh, I don't think that's uh, about uh, free speech. No, but it's that's, not. That's uh, another topic. We're coming to an end. An end here. To yet another show of Arab Talk. You've been listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco. This is 89. Point five FM.